Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Andrew Piper. Andrew is the author of a dozen books, including The Homecoming, The Residence, and many others. His most recent project is Oracle, an audio-only book that he created for Audible and which was narrated by Joshua Jackson. That's Dawson's Creek's Joshua Jackson. Andrew also created a kind of sequel for Oracle in the form of an original audio drama also starring Mr. Jackson. In our conversation, Andrew talks about the strange experience of being part of the major and, by the way, very successful promotional effort put behind Oracle and its sequel, the odd career he's created for himself as a writer with one foot in the literary world and one in the worlds of horror and suspense and thrillers, which maybe means he has more than two feet, and we talk about Andrew's connection to the late Stephen Hyten. I think that you are the only author that I know personally whose name I've heard spoken by Conan O'Brien. <laughs> that, that, that can't be true. Yeah, uh, it really is. I, you would think there'd be more, but uh, yeah, and I had no idea that was coming. <laughs> I was actually genuinely taken aback listening to the Conan O'Brien's podcast, and then he did an ad, and then there you are. There's uh, the Oracle being promoted. Were you aware that was coming? You must have been aware that was a thing, or did you did it sneak up on you too? Totally snuck up on me. I mean, I think it might have been you who alerted me to it initially. Like I, I had no idea. So, um, and there were a lot of those surprises with that book. So, Oracle was a audio only. Uh, Audible exclusive release. So that is to say, um, Audible Canada a couple of years ago had this big push and they uh, had a huge investment in a lot of different projects, nonfiction, fiction, um, celebrities, uh, um, and they were launching this, you know, sort of a, a subscription format. So there, there were kind of, it was kind of like a Netflix drive, you know, sort of right. like, look, never mind the cost. Let's just get subscriber numbers and we'll, you know, we'll kind of, it'll just be a profitable future, I guess. And um, so you're dealing with Amazon, not just Amazon, but you're dealing with, with, with an interested arm directly, you know, attached to the monster. And so that, so there was huge resources expended. And then when, you know, relative to books, right, you know, relative to even, you know, commercial big American based publishers, this was big. And, um, and when Oracle started to do, I think, well, however they gauged that, um, they were funneling more money to it. So there were like bus shelter posters and um, a giant sort of um, poster on the side of the Rex Hotel on Queen Street that I was walking along and like, holy shit, like there's, well, there's mostly Joshua Jackson, but there's also yeah. my name there. Yeah. And, and TV ads like during like Raptors games, like it, it, again, unimaginable within the context of a book publication. So it was just a parade of surprises. And I should ask, like, was this something that they commissioned or did you pitch them to it? Or did they approach you or your agent or someone and say, we just want, we want a little of that Andrew Piper magic. They approached me 
Um, uh, and you know, sort of asked her, do you have, you know, kind of, do you have anything as if, you know, novelists have novels kind of just kicking around. And in fact, I did. I, I had a, a thriller that I wrote that was Oracle that I kind of stepped back from because it felt like the first book in a series. And it was kind mm -hmm. of written with that in mind to a degree. It was, you know, here's a detective, albeit a kind of an unusual one. And, and I was, before we went out with it or were thinking of going out to the market with it, I was spooked a little bit by the prospect of it being successful in the sense of, okay, listen, you know, here's a four book deal or something. Now you got to write four books. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to commit in that way. So I kind of just, just put it on the shelf for a bit. And then Audible, you know, called and like, do you have anything? I was like, as it, you know, and I presented Oracle to them and it, and it worked for them. So it was very, very good luck that I had that kicking around. You obviously have been working in this realm of, of these like psychological thrillers and you've had international publishers. But like you say, this is a completely other level. Did you feel a little dissociated from it? Yeah, because, it, you know, it, it was different from a book's publication in so many ways. So, uh, yes, the format itself, it's audio versus paper. So there's no bookstore you could you know, pretend to accidentally go into to check on your book and like, oh, look, it's there, you know. Yeah, there was, <laughs> slip it there, to the front of the front of the shelf. Or yeah, there was no shelf adjustments that you or your family could be urged to do. Um, and then there was the, you know, the promotion of it, which again was very uh, expansive and, and expensive, but didn't really involve me very much. So there wasn't, you know, here's the reading in the library basement or here's the bookstore signing. And so there was... I was aware of this machine that was going on out there, a machine that would normally be assigned to the task of promoting a movie or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I was not divorced from it, but I wasn't necessary to that machine working. Did they sort of check in with you every once in a while to let you know stuff? Or were you like, you've done your bit, you're the author, we've got to get this other thing out there? More the latter, you know, we, you know we, here's, a, here's a couple of things we'd like you to do. I would satisfy that requirement and then, you know, there'd be no kind of checking in. And then additionally, because it's an audio only download product and it's Amazon it's, and it's subscription based, it was hard to get a sense of like, is this thing working? Is it being successful out of, you know, curiosity? It turns out I was able to discern that it was because um, of, you know, that would be on bestseller lists, like the Associated Press bestsellers, things like that would kind of you know, jump into my, my email notices. So I was able to discover from public resources that it was doing really well. Probably at the end of the day, you know, among if not my most successful book in this very unusual format. The way the nuts and bolts of that deal though is structured, ironically slash comically, is that the author does not enjoy any back end to that. So oh, it's see. an upfront fee. Hey, we'll pay you X for writing this thing and we'll, we'll acquire the rights. It, I was well paid for it. Um, no complaints on that end, but there was no, there's no sense of like, oh, this thing's on a run. Uh, I can look forward to a royalty check down the line. There, there are no royalty checks. Right. Your financial connection to it is kind of done. Yeah. Yes. Sadly, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you take it to a reading and get the Canada Council fee for, you know, impersonating Josh Jackson. Yeah, I could squeeze it that way. That's an excellent idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's You're leaving hundreds of dollars on the table, I think. Well, that'll be the other, you know, just as an aside, the other uh, eye-opening 
aspect to it all was how much people love Josh Jackson. I mean, he did an excellent job in the recording. I know he's a longtime TV and film star, um, good, good guy, but man, like my sort of social feed and stuff just blew up, not by virtue necessarily of, of well, to a degree people enjoying the book, but a lot of it was people just expressing their love for Josh Jackson. It just, it reaffirmed for me the obvious, which is if you're a, you know, if you're a TV star, people, people love you more than, <laughs> more than they ever would as a writer. When they commissioned you, was there someone in that organization who was a big fan of your work and was thought this is the perfect talent and, and voice for this kind of thing? There was. Um, Greg was formerly the um, head of CBC audio drama for a number of years and then went over to Audible to, to kind of head up or be a part of the of this team that was sort of acquiring and producing these audio projects. And he had made a list um, of people he wanted to reach out to on the on the fiction side. And I was on that list. So I think, yes, there was a sort of like, oh, you know, he, he'd be he would what Piper does would, would sort of fill in a nice corner here. And as I mentioned, I happen to have something that what you know, Oracle um, is, is a supernatural thriller. There's horror aspects to it. But it, what really drives it is a, you know, an old fashioned murder mystery in many respects. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a whodunit, but with these other supernatural aspects. So it was kind of a, for them, algorithmically, accidentally, it was a perfect hybrid. And the timing of you having that thing ready that you could hand over as opposed to, sure, I'll go away in 18 months from now, I'll be able to give you something. Being able to hand over a manuscript right away was probably the thing that helped you jump the queue even. Oh, no, absolutely. And I know that there were some writers and playwrights and, and uh, screenwriters who signed up for the pro for that program that who, as far as I know, are still working on their thing, you know, because they get interrupted. And it, so, yeah, and it was very fortuitous that I could say, you know, hit send, uh, let's just, you know, sign up the actor to read it. And we were, yeah, within a matter of weeks, we were off to the race. There was an episode of the show uh, Mythbusters where they explored this story of a guy who went out to the desert and strapped a jet engine on top of his old sort of Chevrolet and just wanted to see how fast he could go. And the punchline was they had to identify him by the dental records or by the, <laughs> you know, the imprint of his teeth on the steering wheel because it was there was just like a black mark up a cliff. <laughs> and I always sort of think about that in terms of you know, some writers that I know that kind of strapped that thriller engine on top of their literary Chevrolet and couldn't handle the sudden acceleration. It puts you into a completely different world, a completely different world of expectations. But I feel like you are someone who, A, almost pioneered that, that shift for Canadian writers, and you handled it very gracefully compared to some people who maybe ended up as a black mark up a cliff. <laughs> do you feel like you handled it gracefully or do you feel like it was uh, um, always in the in danger of getting away from you even then? It was somewhat unexplored territory. That, and, yeah, that's true. No, that I, is I true. Mean, I mean, I read some interviews with you from back then and there was, everyone was sort of talking about it like, what, what, what's going on? It's this, it's this strange phenomena, writing a plot driven novel? Yeah, it was it was analyzed and puzzling for for you know, by many, and then even till 
maybe, you know, up until very recently, and perhaps even continues today, there's occasionally in reviews or in interviews, there's kind of almost a, you know, a, a summoning back, you know, will, will you ever, will, will you ever write a literary novel? Will you, ever, will you ever come home, you know, as if I'm on holiday, at the all-inclusive, and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not getting the flight home. Um, I guess, you know, in, in terms of handling it gracefully or, or, or not, for me, it was never, it, I never sort of, I never had to think about that because I never saw it that way. So, you know, when I re wrote uh, Lost Girls, I was aware that as I was writing it on some level, this is not corresponding with the kind of state of the art of the Canadian literary novel at the time. And, and yet I was sort of, I wasn't really letting myself think about that too much. It's like, well, here's, here's the story I want to write. There was no sense of calculation behind it. There, no, there was no sense of like, you know, if I put ghosts in this thing, this might make this thing pop. You know, there was no, there was no cynical aspect to it or, or, or calculation or, or playing with formula. All that discussion was kind of, it came later in, in you know, being asked about it. At the time I was kind of naively thinking, this is my literary novel. Um, but with some bonus fun stuff that I that I'm fascinated by and I love to read myself, and so um, I've maintained that for better for worse all the way through. You know that the um, just sort of naturally um, refusing to think about well, what is this? What, what's the what category does it belong to? Or should I add more of this? You know, do I need to add more sexy stuff? May make it shorter or longer? what was the best-selling books last year let's let's chase that you know that i think there's temptations to that and i have been asked to contemplate that more over the years by whether by uh, agents or by editors but um i've never i've never gone that way i've never kind of and i don't mean to sound grandiose and you know principled or brave here i just as a natural writerly instinct i've never thought too much at all or at all about um, I'm going to craft this slightly ahead of its time bauble that that everyone will will seek out in a year's time. Like it just, I've never had to do that, and I've resisted the invitations to do it. Right. So you're not going to become like An Andrew Piper Enterprises, where it's actually a team of writers, and you just give the concept, and they go and like. Well, Andrew Piper God. Enterprises is the name of my corporation. So <laughs> it oh, literally, there you go. There. So. Um, but no, it employs no one but me. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I have, when I sort of encounter those stories of those people who do have those kind of, you know, James Patterson or, or you know, people like that who have a factory, I kind of wonder, you know, why bother? Like, you know, that, if you have that level of cynicism on the one hand, but also wealth on the other, like, why bother? Like, just go golfing or sit on the beach and do whatever you want to do. I, I don't understand people at that level of wealth and age who continue to hammer out junk. I, I don't. Why? Why? Why do it? You, you. It must be just on its own momentum after a certain point. Just career momentum. They're probably employing such a big team of people yeah. that that it just the machine has to keep going to to maintain itself. It's not cheap. The idea of Andrew Piper Enterprise, even though it is a one employee operation and it's still, uh, you know, still staffed by its owner and, you know, sole <laughs> proprietor, you do have a backlist of a dozen or so titles 
there are translations, there are other territories, there are TV discussions and film discussions going on. You've entered this whole new world with 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 Oracle and audiobooks. Does that ever feel weird too, where you feel like there is this business that has grown up around you? And then there is the thing you do, which is literally just sit in a room and and type. How how much do you have to separate those two? It's really interesting. That the answer to that question, I think, has changed a lot, sort of year to year over the 23 years I've been writing full-time, writing fiction full-time. Um, I think I would say that I don't think about the business part uh, as you know that often, or it only occasions itself when, okay, I have a finished book or manuscript. You know, how do I present that to my agent? What does he think? What are we going to do with it? You know, that there's a sort of a month or so where it's very business focused. Um, and then the rest of the time, it is, yes, just the the normal anxieties and questions you put yourself about what's the next book going to be. Is this a good idea? Do I want to write this? Is this right for me? All those kind of creative, wonderful things that I prefer to be preoccupied with. Um, and then there's just the sort of, I think sort of an umbrella over all of that is increasingly, you know, kind of, I guess, larger questions that have been prompted by the pandemic in some way, but also getting older, you know, moving into, in my case, into my fifties and, and recognizing that time is not, uh, infinite and just kind of starting to make that calculation of like, well, what are the projects I really, really want to get to before it's too late? You know, like uh, it used to be 10 years ago that the challenge was just simply, do I get to continue to do this? Can I, you know, pay the rent and be a productive member of my family and continue to do this thing I love to do? Indefinitely. Well, the indefinitely is gone now. And so there's a, um, yeah, there's a, an increasingly new there's a new anxiety on top of the old ones which is just sort of like well what's it going to be what are going to what's going to be the next projects that you're going to fight for even if um your agent says i don't know if this is going to work or you know what 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 are the what are the hills you're going to die on mm -hmm. um and that's new it, it makes me think of i used to have a neighbor when i was many many years ago in fact decades ago when i was living in toronto and he was a drummer for a a big name Canadian band that still active today. Very nice guy. And played in a number of different groups and played a lot when the main group was not touring or doing anything or not recording. And then I remember seeing him, this is how long ago it was, he got a fax <laughs> and looked at the fax and it was tour dates, you know, summer tour dates for his main, main band. And I actually saw him kind of slump <laughs> knowing that like, well, you know, the, the main gig has started again, and this is my life for four months. And anything he wanted to do outside of that, it just, he couldn't make it work. Do you ever have that feeling of like, I just want to try something completely strange or completely odd, and maybe it doesn't work? Or do you feel you have preserved that freedom for yourself to like, run up an alleyway if you felt like it? I think I've preserved it, but but there is still an aperture through which the idea or project must pass. And it's not 
strictly external. That is, it's not an agent saying, that's really interesting, Andrew. Uh, maybe when you're 75, you can, you can, you know, pursue poetry or something. It's not, <laughs> <laughs> it's more, it's more um, finding a concept in advance. And, and, and I, I, I think as a, as a business observation or publishing overall has become much more pitch-based. Um, I think often for the better, you know, but maybe sometimes for the worse, but recognizing when you pitch yourself, is this right? Does this feel exciting to me? Does this feel like um, I haven't read a book quite in this space that's, that's out there now? So there's a commercial dimension to that undeniably, you know, is this fresh? Is it going to pop? Our editor is going to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm actually going to read the first 20 pages of this instead of sitting on it for six weeks and calling it a pass. Um, so that's, that's very much a part of it, but also sort of something that excites me. So it's kind of a, to answer your question, it's kind of a, no, I don't sort of feel like, oh, I need to serve the beast. It's a noble beast, but it must be, it must be served. It's more a challenge of, can I uh, um, attach a story engine, kind of going back to your you know, story of the guy attaching the, the, the rocket ship to the Chevy in this, except in this case, it's attaching a rocket ship to the thing that you actually, the story you want to tell or the, 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 the emotional or thematic things that you're interested in being a father, um, getting older, you know, those kind of age old literary preoccupations. And then, but yes, screwing a, a, a rocket to it that makes it propulsive and interesting in a way that you can tell that story and hopefully get the attention of people outside of, you know, your own home. So even now, after, you know, proving that this can be done a dozen times, does it still feel like you're off on your own a little bit? You've created your own little corner of the literary world where you are willing to look at that engine or that car and say, this needs something propelling it that's a little bit more than just you know, rolling down a hill. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm alone, but it's a small company within Canada, I would say, even as the Canadian publishers and the Canadian bestseller list are more occupied with, quote, thrillers, they tend to be of, uh, you know, b belonging to a larger international uh, type where you could sort of, here's the checklist, here's the ingredients. So I, I, on a very, uh, for every given subgenre, there are a checklist to be satisfied and, and people can be excellent practitioners of those forms, but they're typically not surprising in their formal innovation. And I'm not saying I deliver that every time too. I'm not certainly not saying I'm sui generis in some way, but um, often in a troublesome way, the books that I write you know, are a sort of, well, this is kind of a strange hybrid or it's a, um, we were used to peanut butter and chocolate being sort of stuck together, but he's put peppermint in. And so the part marketing department struggles and it's like, can we do peppermint? It's like, well, well wait, you know, we have to because some, some editor bought this. And sometimes those experiments work out well commercially and other times not, but um, yeah, not a, I, I don't think the company of, there's a lot of horror writers in Canada. We're having a horror moment I think in Canada right now and I feel that I'm I'm a part of that group but I don't think I'm you know strictly a horror novelist or um so it's just one of the ingredients I kind of you know will we'll pull from from time to time but um 
long way of saying that, yeah, the, the, the company I keep is not probably widely populated in Canada, more so in, in the States where I think there's a few more people that I, I sort of will read and go, yeah, you're, you're kind of chasing that, that thing I'm chasing too, less so here. But the challenges remain the same, you know, in the sense of each time you have to convince people, mostly with the book, yes, with the pitch before you get that far, but ultimately with the book. And I think that's the one thing that has remained a constant, not just through my career, but, but observing publishing generally over the time of my career, which is, um, yes, there's like, you know, I think, I think we're moving out of this, maybe not, but, you know, there was a time, a decade or more, where it was about platform. Can't publish you with mm. a platform. How many people follow you on, the so on social media, et cetera. Uh, I was always suspicious of that. I always sort of thought, I don't think this makes a, nearly as much of a difference as publishing is pretending it does. I think I've been largely proven right on that. I think there's a lot of people whose books are enormously successful out of nowhere who have 14 people following, following them on you know, Instagram or whatever. And then conversely, you have 45,000 followers for some people who are, you know, can't get published. And I think for the right reasons, that is the merits of the book or the absence of merits of a given book. So in a long way of saying, if you, I think the one constant I, constant I have clung to in this racket is don't be distracted by, I need to really focus more time on my website and kind of gear it up and that's going to be the driver or fashion some persona that maybe a profile writer at the Times will pitch and, you know, a, a lot of that ephemera remains ephemera. And I, you know, I've made the right decision, I think, most of the time in putting the time I would have otherwise wasted on those garlands and distractions and fireworks and just kind of tried to craft a really, really good book that was had some aspects that were unique to them and that, uh, yeah, would be sort of exciting conceptually to an editor and hopefully, you know, an intelligent reader at the end of the day reading it. You know, it sounds super basic, but I think the key to publishing success is to, remains, to write a book that pops. And that's elusive. I'm not saying that's easy. It's fucking hard. But that remains the goal, not, hey, don't look at the book. Look at this other razzle-dazzle over here. I mean, I don't think that ever works. And I think people have been misled into thinking that it might work. It's always been a weird proposition, the idea that because you enjoy watching someone's videos on Instagram, like their Instagram reels or something, and uh, there's a, you know, half a million other people like it, that those people will all follow them to a book. And as if like, we enjoy watching your funny dances, so we will go eat in your restaurant. You must make good food because, <laughs> but this idea that, you know, it's the book first is obviously the, the the approach that has the most integrity, but I can imagine it making some people on the business side frustrated because frustrated with you specifically because they would say like, well, yes, this book, that's great. But what if this book was five books? What if this book was a lot like the last book, which did really well? Yeah, that's come up repeatedly, uh, versions of that repeatedly. Or what's come up even with equal frequency is, you know, can you refine your place as a category 
and then de you know, sort of demonstrate that place with subsequent books. So it doesn't have to be a series per se, but you know, find your place and stick to it. Kind of, you know, stake a claim, and, and um, which probably, again, if I was just thinking about um, stabilizing my income and increasing my market share or something, that is good counsel. Like that, and and it wouldn't necessarily require me to, you know, sell my soul or well, that's it. Then I, you know, I've now I hate this practice. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. Um, there's ways, creative, interesting ways to do that. I just have continually commercially kind of shot myself in the toe, if not in the whole foot, um, over and over by not doing that. Um, so here's a kind of, oh, this one's different from the other ones. And here, so just enough to piss off the marketing department and make their lives really <laughs> difficult and not do myself any favors. Um, but that's, you know, I think as it's turned out, I think that bad inclination of mine um, has borne different kind of fruits. I think that's part of why um, film studios or film producers, for example, who, who I never write with a, with the view to like, oh, this will, you know, these guys are going to like this. Uh, Cause I think that's hope is it doesn't work that way, but that kind of, you know, not doing the same thing exactly twice has in hindsight, I think attracted certain people who are in the business of acquiring books for film they're kind of like, oh yeah, that Piper guy, like he, he, you know, what's he, what's his, what's he doing new? Cause I bet it's not like the other one. I gotta, I gotta see it. Cause it may be something that we want. So that's been a, a part of my career that has been very, you know, there's not been a film made of a major film made of uh, my material as yet. And yet it's been a very um, helpful passive aspect of my income. So if here's options on various things going, and again, I think a lot of that has been derived not from like, oh yeah, Piper, he delivers the same solid product every time. It's, you know, what's, what's that guy up to now? I, I need to check it out. Because you're in this world where there are a lot of people expecting the new thing from you, the new book from you, and, and it's, it's readers, but it's also, again, film producers, agents, rights people, other publishers. Do you ever have the same problem? Um, I spoke to Elizabeth DeMariaffe about this very thing, the idea of people getting involved too early. It's changed. It used to be back in the beginning that I would go away, you know, into a figurative woods and grow a beard and write a book and come <laughs> emerge, you know, at some the log, time. The log cabin model. The log cabin. And, uh, you know, and then sort of hand it over to the agent and say, here it is. And, and now it's your job to sell this thing as best you can. Um, it's not for you to say, well, I can't, or here's significant ways to change it. It's just your job to sell it. I'll accept it if it doesn't sell, but you just need to try to sell it. That has, by necessity, and I think business practice changed over the years since then. I think most agents now require their authors if you're working with them for a you know, length of time to kind of well, what what do you let's talk about what you're working on next because i don't want you to go away for a year or two or three and write something that i can tell you on the face of it right now will never sell and i think you know i initially resisted that you know so well, you know what business is it of yours but that's actually good counsel if you can find someone who you trust their sense of what editors are willing to accept even at their widest margins 
And if you're working again on something, it's like, this will just simply never work. Well, then that thanks. Thanks for letting me know. Um, how about this? You know, and, and so that I pitch a lot more than I used to. And I have come to actually like it because that process of like, what about this? I know but, ooh, ooh, you kind of you find yourself creatively getting to a place where you're like, well, this is even better, way better than that first thing I brought to you. Um, and then and then, you know, then that, that sort of then you then you go away with the blessing of the age, you know, sort of like so here's a general space that I want to write this story. And then I go away, come back a year later or whatever. Here's the book. And there may be sort of surprises, you know, for him of like, oh, well, this isn't quite what I was expecting or this is this is better than I was expecting. But at least it's on a track of like, well, it had these three elements that you liked before. Right. Um, so we're in agreement there. There's something to work with here. And you're, I think you're a lot further ahead because you have, again, that counsel of like, well, you know, if you deliver something that's really good with these three elements that you're excited about, I think we might have something. Again, as opposed to sort of like, here you go, agent. And it's like, well, I'm fucked. Like, what am I, you know, you've just delivered a bag of squirrel tails. Like, I, I can't <laughs> do anything with this. So as long as it involves like Santa Claus, a hostage taking and the moon, that was in the original pitch. Yeah. You, you can paint within that realm. And people are really into the moon right now. So like, yeah, we can, <laughs> the moon's big. Moon. <laughs> <laughs> the moon's hot. <laughs> um, I, I, I really hate to do this and I don't want to kind of uh, uh, end on a, on a bummer note, but I did want to talk a little bit about the stories that that uh, comprise your first book, that comprise Kiss Me, uh, published by Porcupine's Quill, they were actually submitted to Porcupine's Quill by Steve Hyten, who was a friend was a friend of yours, and who passed away uh, quite sadly very recently. I wonder if you were you still very much in contact with Steve, or you know what? How did that feel when you heard that? I wasn't ready for it. Um, I have a lot of uh, uh, regret around that uh, from a personal level uh, because I Steve and I were both over the years and you know, he lived in Kingston I live in Toronto so not the same city but not not unthinkably far apart at the same time and uh, I sometimes travel through Kingston and, and um, so I'm there with some occasion to, and uh, I always meant to look him up and I would hear through the grapevine or sometimes we'd be even at the same event or a, a festival or something and I would hear in the green room sort of like, oh, Steve was asking about you. And that happened literally like three times over the last five years that we were in the same place at the same time. And uh, it was almost sort of comical. So I was like, hey, have you seen Steve? Oh, I just saw him. He was like, Mr. <laughs> Snuffleupagus, you know, he just yeah. around the corner. And so we didn't uh, get together for that drink that we've been meaning to for a while. And um, so when I learned that he had died, I was, uh, you know, devastated because, you know, I think the community lost a great person and a great writer and a, and a, a decent, decent human being and someone who was very kind to me, as you mentioned, uh, to me personally early in my career, just out of the blue, generous and kind. But additionally, I felt like, oh, you know, I wish I had seen him, you know, one more time. You know, I, I was, I'm not claiming to be the closest of friends with Steve, you know, sort of over the years, but he was someone I always really, really liked. And I always thought I would see again. And so when you, when you have that, that 
that opportunity to see an old friend again taken from you and you realize at least half the fault is your own it reminded myself to kind of don't let those occasions pass you know kind of mm -hmm. don't think there'll be another time I'm, i know i'm not alone but speaking personally i think one of the consequences of the, of the pandemic and shuts downs etc was you know i've i used to be quite for a writer especially pretty social you know i i i you know, large group of friends, not some of them writers, not all by any stretch. And I'd forgotten how much I was fueled by, I, I'm very reluctant to use the word community because it sounds so kind of churchy and, 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 and unfun. But yes, I guess for lack of a better term, community of writers where you wouldn't necessarily talk about the work or what are you working on or, or you know, that's not, you know, I lending strength but but just kind of complaining and joke telling and and sharing the bad stuff right like oh here's the reading where no one showed up it's like well my <laughs> reading it was negative five people showed up you know that that's i find that enormously helpful kind of sharing misery and how the world largely if not entirely ignores us and and how we are the smallest cog in this larger machine, even though we're, we should be more, you know, respectively treated, etc. Um, it's hard to endure that on your own for too long. And um, I'm, I'm very deliberately now trying to get back to being with writers and having beers and complaining. I find it mm -hmm. energizing. Yeah, I mean, we both know a lot of writers and a lot of writers in common. And I can say, I don't know that I ever had a conversation with a writer in a social setting about prose and about how, <laughs> how you know dialogue and whether to use quotation marks and how to describe light coming through a window it's always like well that guy was bragging about his film option we know it was like five dollars and, you know, and oh, yeah. oh, delicious yeah that's exactly and you know what it's entirely possible that all those times you missed steve uh, as he just left the room, it because he was about to say something, and then he saw that billboard for Oracle, <laughs> and he was like, "I made that guy. I gave that guy a career." Yeah, and to think I was going to buy him a whiskey. No fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> what happened next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.